0: Uh, from Ephesians 3, starting in verse 16. It says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. The word of the Lord. You know, today uh, represents a lot of things. Uh, Today, uh, for my wife and I, uh, today represents uh, many, many years of praying and dreaming and learning, believing that God's been preparing us for something. Uh, some of you in the room have literally been on that journey with us for the last, what, almost 12 years. Today also represents a new era in the life of Redeemer, a church that has served New York City for the last 30 years. It was uh, a year ago that we made formal announcements about launching uh, Redeemer East Harlem. It represents um, dedicated learning and partnering with other churches and organizations uh, in the community. It represents today a a core team that has spent countless hours uh, committed to deeply processing what it means to faithfully, humbly, graciously plant and start a church in East Harlem. And of course, today represents God's Spirit going before us, doing a work far beyond Anything that we could have possibly uh, contributed, today represents a lot. And on this first official gathering together, uh, I want to tell you a bit about who we are as a church. Uh, for some, this might be a reminder; for others, this may be new. But I want to ensure that today, on this first day, we have a chance to consider what we're, what we are about, and what we will be about going forward. You know, for the the past year, uh, it's been important for us to deeply wrestle with what what does it mean to be a church that is both in and for East Harlem. Uh, It's something that we've said quite a bit. This distinction has been very important for us uh, because it's actually relatively easy uh, to be a church that's in a particular neighborhood. You know, if you have uh, enough money or people or resources, there's no reason that you can't just kind of plop down uh, and start doing church. It's relatively easy. But to be a church that is for a neighborhood is very different. Because to be for a particular neighborhood, that requires knowing and learning and loving and investing in that particular neighborhood. Doing the hard work of discovering and considering the impact that that church would then have on the community. And if we could not articulate and then prove our desire to be good news for the whole community, then we had no right to plant a church here. And so we have been wrestling with this deeply and I'll tell you why it matters. All of that matters because we currently sit in a neighborhood that is weary of change, and it's leery of anything that is new. And depending on how one views a neighborhood like this, newness is either very exciting or it's devastating, depending on one's vantage point. Consider how we tend to experience change just generally in life. If you have agency and you have power, then change can actually be very exciting. Because that change in various ways is because of um, your ability to make that change happen. And so for some, maybe even choosing to live here, when you experience newness, it's welcomed and it's exciting. But, of course, the other end of that spectrum would be if you feel as though you have no power or no, no agency in that change, that change can be very disorienting. And there are many who feel powerless against change, particularly here in East Harlem. And so today, as we launch this new congregation, it's certainly an exciting day, a day that we are extremely grateful to God for. But as a new church, if we fail to be a church that is, we fail to be a church that's for the community and in the community's corner, if we only see this new church, as exciting without also realizing that we are in a neighborhood that is concerned about change and newness. And so as a result, we have been charged with deeply wrestling with how to be faithfully present in this beautiful and vibrant and complicated neighborhood. You know, God has been uh, working and moving in East Harlem for generations there are churches and organizations that have served this neighborhood for many, many years. And so we've had to wrestle with the question, well, how do we relate to those churches, to those organizations? There's an economy that supports the people of this neighborhood. How are we going to invest in that, commun- or in that economy? In this room right now, there are native East Harlemites, there are new gentrifiers. There are people from other communities. How do we resist being a church that is for one group to the exclusion of other groups? How are we to go about being welcoming to all? This, this neighborhood, many of you may know, has a huge immigrant population. It's, it's one of the landing points for many new immigrants particularly those that are from our southern borders of the United States? How do we love and care for them, especially in a political climate and in a time in our nation when they are targeted and marginalized? And above all of that, how do we bring the gospel to bear in such a way that people come to know Jesus, have their lives restored and renewed? How do we get to see God's kingdom come and his will done here in East Harlem? These are the questions that have kept me up at night. These are the questions that I have prayed over and cried over. These are the questions that have guided our journey of planting Redeemer East Harlem. And today represents the next chapter of that journey. For the next seven weeks or so, pretty much from now uh, leading up to uh, Advent, I can't believe we're talking Christmas already, but it is... On the horizon. Uh, I hope to, over the next seven weeks or so, give you a deep dive into what REH, Redeemer East Harlem, I'll be using REH because we're going to totally get that thing going. Um, how REH uh, is going to exist as a church. And I hope to give clarity around the kinds of questions that must be our concern. Uh, I hope to give you some clarity and to show you why it's a complicated venture. For a church like Redeemer to be planting here in a community like East Harlem, a church that has historically uh, been known as a church of uh, great affluence and influence, what does it mean for us to plant a church in a neighborhood that has historically not been those things? And I also hope to show you the ways that Redeemer East Harlem truly can be a church that is good news for East Harlem and beyond. And if you are willing, wherever you might be coming from, to do the hard work, I invite you into this process. Okay, that was my intro. Uh, <laughs> let's get to, the, I promise I won't keep you here all day. Um, we have contractual obligations, we can't be here all day. Um, but with the time remaining, I do want to give you a glimpse into who we are, what we do, by looking at our vision statement, which is simply this, that we are a church church, that seeks to both know and show the love of Christ in East Harlem. And what I want to do this week, I want to take a look at what I mean by knowing the love of Christ. Uh, And then next week, I want to take a look at what I mean by showing that love. And I want to do that by taking a look at the passage that I just read uh, a moment ago. It's been our um, orientating vision passage. We have spent a lot of time looking at this passage, and it's a pivotal passage in the book of Ephesians, Let's understand why and how it applies to us. So the book of Ephesians, uh, broadly, it is a book uh, of Paul's great ecclesiology, Paul's doctrine of the church. Uh, And here in uh, this passage in Ephesians 3, in the first part of chapter 4, it's a pivot point for Paul. See, in chapters uh, 1 through 3, Paul has essentially unpacked the glorious and awe-inspiring work of Jesus uh, in chapter 1, he shows us the, and it makes known to us the spiritual blessings that are given to us in Christ. Uh, he shows the extent to which God is glorified in all things. He declares for us the forgiveness and the purpose and the inheritance that is given to us uh, for those who are in Jesus. In chapter 2, he says that those who are in Christ were once dead but have been given life, having been made alive alive in Christ, that all, those, all, all of this work is not of our own doing, but it is out of his great love for us, for we have, we have been saved by grace through faith, not of our own works that none might boast. He goes on to say that all dividing walls that have once separated people, those dividing walls of hostility have been torn down. That God has made a new people, not marked by race or ethnicity or culture, but rather a people that have now been marked by the lordship of Jesus. There are no second-class Christians, but rather now there is unity, even in the midst of diversity. And then in chapter 3, leading up to our passage, he tells us that this unity is such a mystery that even the heavenly realms, even angels, look at this unity and are awestruck by it. And then he concludes now with our passage that we have read today where he prays this prayer for the Ephesians, uh, the people of Ephesus that they might know and grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is. That love that he just unpacked for three tra- chapters. For for Paul, grasping chapters 1 through 3 is basically what it means to know the love of God. And then he pivots in the first part of chapter four, where now in this opening verse, he says, therefore, in light of everything I've just said, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then in chapters four, five, and six, Paul goes on to spend time showing us how people ought to now live in light of what God has done in Christ. In other words, the knowledge of, of the love of Christ ought to then be shown in the way that we live our lives. Or as our vision statement has put it, we are called to know the love of Christ and then show that love. And we do that in particular here in this neighborhood. That is our mission, that is our calling, that is our purpose to know and to show this love. But here's the rub. If we do one of those without doing the other, We've lost the gospel. If we know but we never show, or if we show but never really know, we've lost the power of the gospel. The gospel is more than just knowledge. It is a transformation that results in action. It is the power of God unto salvation given to those who believe. Knowledge that does not result in action is a truncated gospel, An action that is not rooted in the knowledge of the gospel is a truncated gospel. And it's important for us to know this because every Christian, every church, every denomination will tend to drift one way or the other on this thing. Some might drift toward knowing the love of Christ. And what I mean by that is they may spend all of their time, all their days seeking to know more and more the love of Christ. Without ever showing concern for others, showing that love of Christ. And this is what happens when we become obsessed with simply knowing the love of God in Christ. Uh, We inevitably will end up chasing spiritual experiences, constantly wanting to feel that love. We may become insular and detached from the world. We will not be compassionate, we will not be caring. It will make us obsessed with acquiring more and more knowledge, which time and time again, I have seen that produce, uh, arrogance and self-righteousness. I have been there. All of which is ultimately unloving when knowing and knowledge is the only thing of our concern. But then you've got the other end of the spectrum where you've got others who drift toward always wanting to show that love of Christ without constantly coming back to knowing that love and rooting themselves in the work of Jesus, the reason why one ought to now show love. And when that happens, that usually results in burnout. That can turn into arrogant self-righteousness about one's good deeds and actions And it often leads one uh, subject to what Paul describes later on in chapter 4 where someone is now tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of doctrine because they lose sight of why one shows the love of Christ. They lose sight of the truth that we are broken sinners in need of forgiveness and mercy. We have been shown that forgiveness and mercy, and so we then show that love. In other words, to summarize what I'm Saying here, we are compelled to resolutely show the love of Christ because we deeply know that great love. Without both, we lose the gospel. And while we'll get more specific next week about what I mean by showing the love of Christ, my question to all of us today would simply be this Do we know the love of Christ? Do you know it? Have you experienced that great love? You know, if the answer to that question is no, I want you to know that God is calling you. We, we've spoken of this already. He's calling you, He is pursuing you, He is desiring to embrace you. And I want you to know that you can, be, uh, you can experience that love, you can be transformed by that love. It is hope, it is life, it is freedom, it is joy, it is purpose. And so I call you to know that experience of his love that surpasses all knowledge. But maybe for some of us, as I ask that question, do you know the love of Christ? Your answer to that question would be yes, I know that love. And if that's your response, I ask you a question that I need to ask myself regularly: Is do you regularly, daily, return to the deep well of love to be refreshed and to be renewed, or do you find yourself constantly striving to achieve that love? Have you ever, um, you ever known a self-righteous Christian? Have you ever been a self-righteous Christian? Are you currently a self-righteous Christian? (laughs) Uh, What makes us self-righteous? We we become self-righteous because we do not constantly come back to knowing and remembering the love of Christ. We can become self-righteous too often because we really do believe that our actions merit us some kind of favor Before God. It's all too common. We all fall into this, and this impacts all different types of Christians. To give you an example of what I mean by that, consider the ways that this idea of self righteousness plays itself out uh, in two streams of Christianity that we'll just caricaturize as more conservative Christians and more progressive Christians. All right, to paint a, a caricature of a conservative Christian, Forgive me if you find yourself in this category, but I think it would be fair to say conservative Christians tend to care primarily about holiness and about purity. There is much moral posturing about things like reading the Bible and going to church and not being corrupted by worldliness. Now, hear me, all those things are good and right uh, and true, but if you're a Christian, I... It is important that we know, and I, I, have, I know that I have been here uh, before, and I know that some of you maybe have as well, but if you are a Christian, if you assume that any of those things merit you favor with God, then you don't fully understand and know the love of God in Christ. You don't understand the fullness of it. And when, you know, when I think about days, uh, and again, maybe you've been here, when I am just killing it as a Christian. (laughs) Even on those days, nothing that I have done merits favor with him. On the days that I am absolutely killing it with God, there tends to be this assumption, well, God now owes me something. I've been killing it for him, and so he ought to now bless me, show me favor. But who says that that's the case? Because whether it's a day that I am killing it or a day that I am failing miserably, neither one of those things has impacted the way that God loves me. For God loving us in Christ means that our perfection and our righteousness is not our own. It is Christ that, have been, that has been given to us. And when I think that God's love for me is based on something I've done, I come to realize that I don't truly know the depths of his love for me. Maybe you find yourself more in the progressive side of things with Christianity. Again, allow me to paint a bit of a caricature, but progressive Christians care about fighting for justice, working for equity, being welcoming to the stranger and to the immigrant, working against unjust systems and structures. And hear me, that is all good and right all of those things reveal the character of God and ought to be part of the Christian's life. But when we believe those things merit us favor with God, again, it shows the extent to which we do not know truly the depths of love. There is no breaking down of any injustice, unjust system that ever merits me more favor before God. And it doesn't mean that we don't fight for those things and that we constantly are striving to do better, but your righteousness contributes nothing to how much God loves you in Christ. And I draw all of this out for us today because any action or deed must first and foremost be rooted in knowing Christ's love, a love that molds us, that shapes us in such a way that we are then compelled To go and live in light of that love and again we will get more to what i mean by how we show christ's love next week but know this know that we when we deeply know the love of god we will care about the things that god cares about when we have been deeply shaped by the love of god in christ we will strive to be holy we will strive to be obedient and pure. We will strive to fight injustice, fight for equity. We will desire to stand with the immigrant and with the stranger and with the poor and resist those unjust structures when we have been shaped by the knowledge of God's love for us in Jesus. I mean, why should the Christian who knows the love of God in Christ care about things like holiness and obedience and justice? Because God cares about obedience and purity, and holiness, and justice. In the gospel, the love of God in Christ is foundational for those things. We cannot truly be holy, or pure, or just without being fully formed and fully shaped by this great love. And on this launch Sunday, I draw these things out because too often I am disheartened When I see my brothers and sisters in Christ with their affections, not on Christ, but on too often self-serving ideology that can often use Christ as a tool for their own personal gain. And I see this across the spectrum. And I also recognize that too often I fall into these traps. And I know that many of us here also fall into these traps. You know, on the one end of the spectrum, we live in a time... When the name of Jesus is being used to promote nationalism and xenophobia and economic injustice, and this disheartens me because it is an affront to the gospel of grace. On the other end of the spectrum, we live in a time when the name of Jesus is used to promote destructive individualism that prioritizes the wants and the desires of individuals regardless of what is good and right and pure and godly. And it disheartens me because it is an affront to the gospel of grace, all of which I believe is too often the result of not knowing and remembering the love of God in Christ. And I realize that for me personally, uh, for you individually, and for our church corporately, there are ways in which we have too often not drank from the deep well of Christ's love Remembering all that Paul has declared and shown to us to be true. And as a result, our affections have been drawn elsewhere. But Christian, today, remember these truths. Christian, remember that you were once dead in your sin, but Christ has made you alive. And that knowledge must mean that we now live like those who have been raised from the dead. Christian, you were once alienated from God and from others, but now in Christ, you are now his children, one people. The dividing walls of hostility have been brought down between us because God has torn them down, and that knowledge, knowing that you were once a stranger and an alien, ought to mean that you are now welcoming. Of those who would be unwelcome elsewhere. Christian, you were once ruled by darkness, left to your own devices, your own corrupt nature, but our great King of compassion has defeated that darkness that our minds might be renewed by the work of his Spirit. As verse 16 tells us in this passage, that there is strength by the power of the Spirit, and that knowledge ought to mean that we no longer follow the corrupt desires of our heart and our flesh, but now trust in what God commands. Trust that what he desires is what is best and right and pure and true for his creation. And so again, I ask, do you know that great love of Christ that has accomplished so much for you on your behalf? the love that saves, the love that restores, the love that is redeeming all creation. This is my prayer for Redeemer East Harlem, that we would be a church committed to knowing this love of Christ, that as a body, we would regularly come back and drink from this deep well of love. And as we do, we then commit ourselves to showing that great love to others. And so if you're ever asked after this first inaugural service, so what's Redeemer East Harlem all about? You can simply respond that we are about knowing and showing the love of God in Christ. And I pray that as we do this, I trust that God's word is true, that as we do these things, he will do immeasurably more then we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is my heart's cry for our lives individually. I hope that's our heart's cry for our neighbor's life, even the person sitting next to you even now, for this church, for our neighborhood, that God would do immeasurably more than we could possibly imagine as we commit to knowing him more deeply and showing his love more resolutely to all those that he's called us to love and serve. Let's pray together. Father, you are a God of great love, a God of great compassion. Uh, We we don't even fully know the depths of that love. Uh, And yet you are also a God who in Jesus has come to us that we might know that love. And you have done it by accomplishing a work that we could not accomplish. In the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus, all that is needed to know you and to see your kingdom has been accomplished, not by us, but by you. And Father, as we now turn to your table... God, we ask that this table would be a reminder of that great love, the great sacrifice that Christ gave, and may this meal be uh, not just an opportunity for us to be reminded, but may it also nourish us in such a way that your grace uh, pours out from us into the world that you've called us to love and serve. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.